Well, the oldest and most prestigious order of knighthood in England is the most noble order of the Garter. It was founded in around 1348 by King Edward III. It is one of, and still exists, one of the most exclusive groupings in the world. Membership in the order is strictly limited. It includes the monarch of England, the Prince of Wales, and no more than 24 companion members. Up until 1860, new members were nominated by existing members, but since 1860, the monarch of England has simply appointed new members as required, but there are only ever up to 24 companion members. So if you're waiting for an invite, don't hold your breath. Now, there's lots of exclusive clubs going around, uh, golf clubs, men's clubs, women's clubs, and to get into some of these clubs, you just can't rock up and fill in an application form. You need to know the right people, or you've got to have the right money, or you've got to have been born into the right family. At the time of Jesus, it was thought that being one of God's people was like this. It was like an exclusive club. Not just anyone could be one of God's people. You needed to come from the right people. You needed to be a Jew or an Israelite. And only they could lay claim to being the people of God. But Jesus came to blow this idea out of the water. As we've been working our way through Luke 1 and 2 over the past few months, uh, the focus has been squarely on who Jesus is and what he came to do. But from verse 21 in chapter 2, Luke now wants to zero in on who did Christ come for? And the startling news that breaks through here is that anyone can become one of the people of God. Absolutely anyone, from whatever background, from whatever social standing, from whatever sinful past, anyone can be included in God's people, which is great news for the likes of you and me because this changes the way we think about God and it also changes the way we think about one another. So let's have a look. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. Uh, Joseph and Mary have just brought their baby son to the temple. Uh, They've named him Jesus, consecrated him to the Lord as their firstborn, and while they're in the temple, they meet a man by the name of Simeon. And it's through Simeon that we learn who Jesus came for. And first off, it's that Christ came for Israel. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon, we're told here, is waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that's an important little phrase taken from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, where God promised that after he judged Israel, he would comfort her, he would console her. Because God had promised that he would punish Israel for her sins, and so he was going to eject them out of the promised land. He was going to deliver Israel into the hands of the Babylonians because of their sin, but God also promised that after he'd judged Israel, then he'd console them, he'd forgive them, he would come for Israel, he would save them and restore them as his people and restore them back into the promised land. Now, at the time of Christ, Israel had been back in the land, the promised land, for a few hundred years, but they weren't enjoying God's consolation because they were still an oppressed people. It was the Romans who ruled over them. Israel didn't have their own king. Israel was still under the judgment of God. Simeon understood this. That's why he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, but the wait was just about over. Verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit 
that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. By the Spirit of God, Simeon recognised in this baby the promised Christ. Simeon knew that Jesus was the one who would come and console Israel. Jesus is the one who would come and forgive Israel's sins and restore her to God to end God's judgment, usher in God's great final salvation. Jesus came for Israel, which is all very expected. Because right the way through chapter 1 and even into chapter 2, we've had Gabriel, we've had Mary, we've had Zechariah, all telling us how this coming promised king is going to redeem Israel. So here in chapter 2 with Simeon telling us that in Jesus we have the salvation of Israel, that's all very much par for the course as far as Luke's gospel is concerned. What comes next, though, is very unexpected. Through the lips of Simeon, Luke is going to drop a bombshell. In fact, he's going to drop two bombshells. And the first is that Christ didn't just come for Israel. It's that he came for the Gentiles too. He came for people who aren't Israelites. Have a look at verse 30 again. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Here, for the first time, Luke explicitly mentions that Christ came for the Gentiles, people who aren't Israelites. And this is a bombshell. Problem is, you and I tend not to feel the weight of this very much because we are Gentiles and some of us here have been Christians for decades. This isn't new news. Uh, Gentiles have been flooding to Christ for the last 2,000 years, so Jesus come for the Gentiles, that's very much old hat for you and I. But at the time of Luke, when he wrote this, this was all very new. Back then, if you put yourself in Luke's shoes, for the previous 2,000 years, it was the Israelites who were the people of God. The Gentiles, they were just pagan scum. We Gentiles, we were excluded from citizenship in Israel. We were foreigners to God's promises. We were without hope and we were without God in the world. The Israelites, though, they had it all. They belonged to God. They had his promises. They were his people. And they had a monopoly on being the people of God, a monopoly they had basically enjoyed for the past 2,000 years. Christ came, though, to crack things wide open. But to turn this thinking around was a mammoth task. To get the Israelites and the Gentiles to understand that they both had equal access to God, that is a massive turnaround in thinking. One of the biggest ships ever built was called the Nock Nevis. Uh, Here's a picture of it. Hopefully. Hey, don't you love technology? There it is. There's the Nock Nevis. It was almost a half a kilometre long. 458 metres. It weighed 200,000 tonnes, could carry 500,000 tonnes. I'm not even sure what this means, but apparently the draw of the Knock Nevis was so big, it was actually incapable of going through the English Channel. If the Knock Nevis was travelling at full speed and wanted to come to a stop, it would take almost nine kilometres to come to a halt. 
And of course, turning the Knock Nevis around, that's no small task. In clear weather, it had a turning circle of more than three kilometres. I'd like to see you reverse park the Knock Nevis. When you've got something so big, it takes a lot to turn it around. The idea that Jesus and Luke were involved in turning around was a very big idea, and it was going to take a lot to turn it around. Because the idea that only the Israelites were the people of God, that had been around for 2,000 years. Generation after generation had grown up with it. Rituals were handed down. There was even God-given law that reinforced the idea. But God himself promised that one day his salvation would flood the nations. One day he was going to include people from the four corners of the earth into his people and they would pour in like Niagara Falls. What we're being told here in Luke 2 is that with Jesus, that time had come. He's come for the glory of Israel, sure, but he's also a light for the Gentiles. Now, because of Christ, anyone can belong to God, even us Gentiles. But Luke's got another bombshell to drop because it's not just that the Gentiles get to be in on being part of the people of God, it's also some of Israel are going to miss out. Those who were previously thought of as being almost guaranteed, they're now on the outer, while the Gentiles are going to rush in. Have a look at verse 33. Verse 33, the child's mother, father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Here Simeon's predicting that Jesus will cause great division in Israel, that Jesus will cause many to rise in Israel, but he'll also cause many to fall in Israel. Many in Israel are going to speak against Jesus, Simeon says. The thoughts of many will be revealed. And we see this played out in Luke's books where we meet characters like the Pharisees and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, Israel's religious leaders of the day. And they appear righteous and pious and God-fearing and respectable, but as they come face to face with Jesus, their hearts and their thoughts are revealed and they're seen for the self-righteous, proud, power-hungry parasites that they are. And so as Simeon said, men in Israel, they will fall on account of Jesus. They're going to miss out on God's comfort. They're going to miss out on God's forgiveness and salvation. They will remain under the judgment of God. Meanwhile, there's going to be Gentiles who will be included in the people of God. This is such a massive turnaround. And we see this too being played out in Luke's, in Luke's books as Gentiles come to Jesus and are included in God's people. Praise God, we see God still playing this out in our world today. Every single day, God saves people from across the globe to be included in his people. And for us here who are Gentile Christians, it's good to be reminded that it is a remarkable grace of God that we are even in the picture. It is a testimony to the incredible power of the Lord Jesus that he can even include Gentile sinners like us in amongst his people. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Flip to the right, Ephesians chapter 2. It's towards the back, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, Here Paul is halfway through speaking of God's incredible grace in that he saves both Jew and Gentile, but he saves both of them only through the Lord Jesus. 
only through Christ. So chapter 2, verse 11, and Paul is speaking about us Gentiles. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Paul's saying to us Gentiles, remember that before Christ came, we were hopeless, literally hopeless, without hope, without God in the world, excluded from the people of God. But, verse 13, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We were once far away from the people of God, far away from God himself, but now through the blood of Christ, through his death, we've been brought near to God. And Christ's death is the way that both Jew and Gentile come to God. So now there is no difference between us. Come down to verse 17. Verse 17. He, that's Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who are far away, that's us Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, that's the Jews. For through him, through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you Gentiles are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Can you feel the weight and the excitement of these verses? It is the same weight and excitement that we're seeing in Luke chapter 2. Gentiles, of all people, Gentiles have been included in the people of God. The Lord Jesus is so all-encompassing that he's even a light for the Gentiles. He's so majestic that even his death was for the sins of the Gentiles. His spirit has even been given to Gentiles. And so even us Gentiles can now have access to God the Father. And all of this has come to us only through the Lord Jesus. When I was still in high school, my older brothers, they went off to uni and uh, they both stayed in the same residential college on campus. And every now and then I'd go and visit Dave and Greg. And when I did, it made me hope that one day I would be able to go to the same residential college because it always looked like a great place to be. Dave and Greg always had so many friends and people were always laughing and there was always a lot of fun things happening. The place had such a great vibe but I was always an outsider looking in hoping that one day I'd be able to go. As Gentiles we used to be outsiders looking in on the wonder of being included in the people of God but now Because of Jesus, we don't have to hope that one day we'll be able to join. Christ has died even for the likes of us so that we can be brought to the Father. And so the glories of receiving the very Spirit of God and having access to the Father, being forgiven of our sins, having the promises of God, becoming members of his household, the delight, the honour, the privilege of knowing God as our Father, it has all been given to us, even us Gentiles, but only through the blood of Christ. And so what we're being shown here in Luke 2 and in Ephesians 2 is that anyone can belong to God. Anyone, even Gentile pagans like us.
I don't know if you ever think there's some people out there that God wouldn't come at, you know, some people that even God would have to stop short of. God wouldn't want them, surely. I mean, if a known prostitute walked through these doors and came among us to find out about Jesus, would you be comfortable with them sitting next to you? If we're ever tempted to look down on anyone else as if we have more of a right of being included in the people of God, if we ever think like that, there is at least one thing we've forgotten. We've forgotten who we are. We're Gentiles. We were excluded from citizenship in God's people, foreigners to God's promises, without hope and without God in the world. We have absolutely no claim upon God whatsoever. The Israelites never had any claim upon God. How much less do we? But through Christ, anyone can now belong to God. Anyone. Even you and I can be included in the very people of God, but not because we're upright people, not because we're nice people, not because we come to church, not because we're middle class, not because we're socially acceptable. We're not included in God's precious people because we're special. We're Gentiles for crying out loud. The only reason we can be included in the people of God, the one and only reason is because of Christ, because his blood was shed. He has brought us near. And since it relies only on the Lord Jesus, not only can anyone be part of the people of God, it also means that there is no such thing as a second-class Christian. If we're all included in God's people purely by the blood of Christ, then no one here can look down on anyone else. We are all the same, sinners. And if we've been brought to God, we've all been brought the same way. Only through the blood of Christ. And so not one of us can think that we're better than anyone else. There is no such thing as a second-class Christian. And so if you are ever tempted to look down on other Christians, particularly other Christians in your own church family, I don't know, maybe you're tempted to think that you're better than others because your children don't do what the other children do, or the way you dress is more acceptable than the way others dress, or... The sacrifices that you make for Christ, they're way more than what most of the other people are doing around here. And if we could only see the things you do behind the scenes, you'd begin to realise just how lucky we are to have you here. If you are ever, if we, if I, if any of us are ever tempted to think like this, we have got it so wrong. Because we can't impress God by anything we do. We can't make ourselves more valuable or more significant. There is no such thing as a second-class Christian. Maybe, though, you're the opposite. Perhaps you come here and Sunday by Sunday you're just overwhelmed and you actually feel really small and inferior. You actually feel like you shouldn't be here at all because you look around the room and everyone else, they just seem to have it all together. Everyone else seems to be powering on for Jesus. They say the right things, they do the right things. Everyone just looks so Christian, so together, whereas me, I'm just a failure. I can't do much. I've got nothing to offer. And if you only knew my heart, I really shouldn't be here at all. I'm a fake. I don't deserve to be here with all these Christians. Friends, if that's something along the lines of what you think and feel, please remember there is no such thing as a second-class Christian. 
No such thing. None of us, absolutely none of us deserve to be here included in the people of God. It is only by the blood of Christ that anyone can belong to him. And so there is no one here more important than anyone else. No one more significant. No one more worthy. We are all Gentile sinners who have only been brought to God through the blood of Christ on our behalf. And so all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, all the worth, all the value... It all goes to Jesus because he's the one who died. Even for Gentile sinners like us, he's the one who has brought us near. Friends, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that it is in Christ and in Christ alone by his blood shed for our sins, that we have been brought near to you. Thank you for that incredible grace that you have included even Gentiles like us. And Father, we know our sin. And yet, Father, you have forgiven us and saved us. And we know we're unworthy, and yet your love showers upon us. Father, we know that we fall short. We know we don't deserve, and yet you give your comfort and your cleansing. Father, you are worthy of all praise. We thank you for the blood of your Son. And we pray that together as a church family we would honour one another, we would love one another deeply so that we would all bring the honour and praise to Jesus Christ, our King, even our Saviour. Father, for his sake we ask these things. Amen.